0: Good morning, Calvary. Good morning, Calvary. Would you grab your Bible with me if you have one, if you need one, there's one in front of you there. We're uh, going to look at Exodus, the Old Testament story of God's greatest redemptive work in the history of Israel, of rescuing Israel out of Egypt to bring them to the promised land. And uh, one beautiful theme I've already seen this morning is the... Uh, the rooting of faith in the Word of God. And you saw people be baptized today and say, This is the scripture that helped frame my view of my spiritual life. And I, I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey, but the best thing that will help shape your spiritual life is listening closely to the Word of God and letting the Word of God shape you. And so, in something of a, uh, we, we don't always go to the Old Testament but we've been for nine weeks in the book of Exodus studying God's work in saving his people and today we have a an awesome episode in the story of God's rescuing his people when I say story I don't mean um, a fable I mean the historical account of what God did in his people so in Exodus chapter 19, the people of Israel have been rescued for about three months now, and they are brought by Moses to Mount Sinai in the wilderness, and they are there, and God is about to give them His moral law, His law to them on the way in which they will live, and they're camped before the mountain, and God calls Moses out to the mountain and says to him, This is what you're going to say to the house of Jacob. This is what you will tell the people. In Exodus chapter 19 verse 4, God says this. You yourselves know, you know, what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself, now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is God telling Moses, you tell the people, this is on the brink of God giving them what we know as the Ten Commandments. Do you like commandments? Most of us have an internal sense of uh, pride that we don't always like to be told what to do. And some of us are rule followers, how many rule followers are in the room? And then there's the rest of us, who like we tend to sort of figure out a way to maybe get around the rule, now I'm married to a wonderful woman. And she and I have been married for 38 years. Yeah, it's awesome. And she's a preschool teacher. So she's really good with rules. Like she makes rules all the time for her students. And I sometimes get rules too. And um, I, I, the, it's been part of our dynamic that's been a beautiful work of grace. But she'll remind me sometimes about, um, like, driving. Driving. Aren't you glad when you get in the car and you drive somewhere that generally in Boulder when you drive around, there really uh, is an adherence to red lights? Not, uh, not always, but normally, if you're in traffic on, in the morning and you're heading into work and you're at a red light and there's 50 cars with you waiting, they're all just waiting Maybe not patiently, but they 're waiting until it goes green, and until that happens there 's people traveling in front of you, and they 're not thinking about anything because their light 's green, and then it 's going to change, and everything is relatively orderly relatively right and we don 't think about that we just like that that 's a good thing. If you traveled in another place around the world, sometimes though that respect for traffic laws is not uniformly experienced, right? Or you've been up on a switchback up on, um, on the mountain pass. Do you ever say when you get up there, why in the world did they put guardrails up here? You know, you say, oh, I'm so thankful there's a guardrail here. Like, wow, that is a long way down. And you love that guardrail. In some way, what God is doing when he gave his law to his people it was out of the expression of who he is with the vision of what he wants his people to become as the expression of his law for them to live the good life. So if there's anything about hearing the pastor say, I'd like to talk to you about the Ten Commandments today, and you say, wait, 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 I don't want anybody to tell me what I have to do. I hope by the end, you will see the reason that the only right response in our hearts is, oh, God, I love your law. Now, let me show you three things about God that emerge from this text. 19, Exodus, verse 4 through 6. There are three things that God says about himself before he gives the law. And the first is, you yourselves know what I did to the Egyptians, And he's bringing to mind for them what his almighty power has accomplished for them three months ago when he delivered them from Egypt and the months prior to their exit when he was working with Pharaoh and and exercising his miraculous power even in the ten plagues that culminated in this devastating judgment of almighty God when he took the rebellious people of Israel and judge them for their unwillingness to listen to God. It was dreadful. And I think when he said, you yourselves have seen what I did, probably the people of Israel were listening to, oh yeah, I remember the ten plagues. I, I remember the last one was terrible. And I remember the way in which God took all of the people of Egypt, and he made them just generous to take all of their wealth, and say, here, take our wealth and go. And the Bible says that the Lord gave Israel favor in the eyes of the Egyptians so they just said here take my rings my gold and go or maybe when we read this line they're thinking I remember when we first left Egypt and we came to the Red Sea and God opened up the water and we passed through and then the Egyptians went in and they, they perished and I remember when we got to the other side that we were hungry and God gave us manna and quail and water and God is about to give the law and he says you know what I You know what I've done. You know I'm almighty and all-powerful. And I just want you to know that when God's about to give his law, it's emerging from a character that is almighty. You with me? Second thing that God describes about himself before giving the law is, is I am the one who bore you up on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Your escape from Egypt was as if an eagle was carrying on her back her little eaglets clinging to her wings, and she's flying, trying to encourage them to fly, and they fly, and they fall, and she swoops under and carries them. And this is an image that God gives to Moses is the way in which God delivered his people out of Egypt, which absolutely underscores their delivery from Egypt was about what percent based on them. Yeah, it's a work of God. It's God saving them. And it's not only that he's saving them out of Egypt to bring them to Canaan. That's not really what this phrase says. I bore you on eagle's wings and I brought you to Canaan. No, to what? God's saying, I brought you to me. The point of my rescue is I want a relationship. I want you to be mine. I'm not just going to bring you to a new land, but I want you to be with me. And I did that for you. So he's not only almighty, the great things he did, but he's gracious. And the third thing is in the phrase, and the whole earth is mine. And I think God just dropped that in there to say, uh, all of this is mine. Egypt is mine. Israel's mine. All that is in the earth is mine. I am the sovereign God. And it is as if God is giving a glimpse of his constituent makeup to Israel that becomes the the foundation by which Israel would, with joy, say, Okay, if that's who you are, I'm with you. He's almighty, he's gracious, and he's sovereign over all. It's beautiful. Now, when you think of God giving a law, do you think of him up there saying, especially if you hear the Ten Commandments, you shall not. And our vision of God sometimes can be that he's just waiting to scold you. And he's describing himself as all-powerful, all-gracious, all-loving, all-sovereign over all, and saying, I want you with me. Now, I'm about to give you my law. Does that make sense? Our vision of God is an important way we, we live a good life. You need a vision of God that's like this. Now he says three things about what he intends for Israel. It's like the mission statement of Israel. What is Israel going to become? Well, there's three statements here. And you yourselves know what I did for the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles. We can brought you to myself. And you, let's read it together. You shall be my Let's say it again. You shall be my treasured possession. It's as if God's saying, this is who I am, and this is what I want you. You will be my treasured possession. I'm redeeming a people for me, and I love you, and I think of you as my treasure. Can I just ask you, when you think about what God thinks about you, Is the first thing that comes to your mind that he loves me? Oh, how he loves us. And he wants Israel to be his treasured possession whom he loves. Now these next two phrases are two more ideas where God is saying, Israel, this is what I want you to be, my treasured possession, and you will be a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests? What does a priest do? A priest sort of stands between God and others. And God's idea of why he rescued Israel is that they would be, his words, a a kingdom not with priests, but of priests. That everyone in the nation would in a sense be a representative of God in the world. This makes perfect sense because God loves the world he's working in Israel they're his treasured possession but it has in God's mind that he will fulfill his covenant that he made with Abram when he said to Abraham I'm going to make of you a great nation and through you all the nations of the world will be blessed this is it Israel's going to become a kingdom of priests and they're going to represent God in the world and they're going to manifest who God really is like in the world And the last, you're a holy nation. Now, was Israel holy? We tend to think of holiness as being moral purity, and that's right. But it can also simply mean that you're going to be a unique nation set apart for God. So God's mission for Israel would be that you would be his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests who represent him in the world, and that you would be a -a one-of-a-kind nation unique in your life together a holy nation now Israel wasn't always that but that's what God had in mind when he saved them when he rescued them and when he's about to give them his law in fact if you fast forward in your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 4 you will get a glimpse of Israel entering into the promised land at the end of the 40 years and there um, in Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 6 they're told that they need to keep the law And keep the statutes, for that will be your wisdom and understanding in the sight of people. In other words, if you keep this law that I'm about to give you, it's going to be good for you. It's going to be for your wisdom and for your understanding. For all the people to see that my people live this way, and those people are going to say, wow, surely this is a great nation, a wise and understanding people. And it's going to be so obvious that this group of people who were saved by the almighty, gracious, sovereign God to be a kingdom of priests and a unique nation are going to live among the nations in such a way that the other nations actually say, wow, this is a really unique people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? Moses is saying, hey, if we do this, we're going to have God with us in everything we do. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all of these that I've given to you? Like, nobody lives by a moral code like this moral code. And everybody said, yeah, okay, a little, a little weak. But you get the idea. I mean, but Moses is really saying, if you do this... Um, it will have a permeating effect in the whole world. So we shouldn't think that God's just saving Israel. He's saving Israel to be a kingdom of priests and a unique nation that all the other nations say there's something about that people. In fact, this is what Peter picks up in the New Testament to describe those of us who have become followers of Jesus. And he actually just uses the same word. Watch the same words. But you want to read it with me? Let's read it together. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, that's what Peter says and it has Exodus all over it. You're a possession. You're God's choice. God is in you. And your mission is not to huddle up together and keep it under a bushel. Yeah, It is to proclaim the excellencies of him who saved you. And to make it known to all the world. Until all the world knows that this is the God that we serve. He's almighty. He's gracious. And he's sovereign over all. You're going to be that kind of people. I love that the New Testament picks this up. And it's really taking on the whole theme that it's not that God is giving his law that we would know his law. It's that God is giving his law that we would know him, the lawgiver. Okay. And actually, if you want to know, the book of Revelation ends with this same similar language that we enter into the eternal state as a kingdom of priests who give glory to God for all of eternity. I just want you to know that when God saved Israel, He had something in His mind for that group of people. And there is a parallel to those of us who are in Christ, that He doesn't just save us to make us a trophy on the shelf. He saves us to make us representatives of Him in the world till all the world knows. That the work God began in Israel, he fulfilled in Christ. The law he gave in the Old Testament in tablets of stone, he brought to fulfillment in the life of Christ. And the adherence to the law or failure to is fulfilled in Christ who fulfilled the law and then died for those who couldn't keep the law like you and me. Now that's an amen. That's just good news. Okay, so that's what God's like. That's his vision for Israel. I want you to see one more time in Exodus chapter 19 verses 4 through 6, just one more phrase and I would just describe this as these are the terms of the agreement. This is who I am. This is who I want you to be. And this is what it takes to get here. If indeed you obey my voice and keep the covenant. It's like, okay, that's what God asks. Uh, let me ask you, is it alright for God? Should, can God say to his people, this is my expectation for you. I want you to keep my, I want you to keep my word. Okay, so if there's anybody who in here who has got that little lawbreaker bend like, I don't know if I want to do that. No. The point is, this is who God is. Do not forget. This is not This is not some second rate political official telling you what to do. This is God saying, This is my law for you. And so he then gives the law. All the people um, said, We'll we'll do whatever God says, the end of chapter 19. We'll do whatever God says. Okay? God said, That's good. All right, here's my word. And then we go to chapter 20, and God begins to give his word. And this is where the Ten Commandments are found. And we're only going to look at the first four quickly today, and we'll look at the next six next week. Um, The first four um, actually begins this way. So God spoke the words. And by the way, that's the way it's referred to, the ten words. Sometimes ten commandments, but the ten words that God gave that would be the law for his people, how his people would live. So God spoke this and he says, in case we needed to see it again, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. What's he doing? He's simply saying, I'm your Redeemer. I saved you. I rescued you. I gave you a new life. I brought you out of bondage. I am the one who freed you. And so your freedom in God makes perfect sense then that you would live in a way that reflects the law of that God. He's simply saying my redeeming work in your life is the basis by which I can say this is the way you should walk. And so then he begins, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. That's, that's simple. There aren't many gods. There is one. And he says, besides me you must make a choice that excludes all others. And that choice for Israel is going to have to be affirmed and reaffirmed and reaffirmed and reaffirmed. reaffirmed. Are we like Israel? I see a little resemblance to me in them. We have to reaffirm. There is no other God. There are those that threaten, but not God and something else, not God and anything else, God and nothing else. And choosing Him means loving Him and Him alone. The second commandment, you will make no idol for yourself, no carved image out of stone or out of wood or out of any other thing, no representation of God that will take the place of God because to do so would be an insult to his infinite magnitude as if to subscribe circumspect him in this small thing and say, that's God. So no image made out of anything that would limit him in his freedom, in his majesty, in his magnitude. He he is the uncaused, uncreated God and can't be held in an idol. You might remember in the New Testament when Paul went to Athens and he walked through the city of Athens and there were all of these idols to all the different gods of the day. And there was even one there that said, to the unknown God. And it was the way of covering all your bases to make sure all your deities were covered. And Paul said, I want to tell you about the God you don't know. He's not a God who can be formed with hands. He doesn't dwell in houses. And we should be careful not to take stone or wood or precious metals like silver and gold and create something out of man's art Or designing as if that were God? And we say, of course. I mean, we gave up on idols a long time ago, right? We don't have idols. What what threatens your love for God to take a, a, a higher place than the God we've been talking about? Doesn't have to be hay, doesn't have to be wood, doesn't have to be um, made of something. It can just reside in here and just be like, I love this more. I love that people love me. And I'll do what I need to that people love me. I need approval. I need more things. You get it? Idolatry is not really dead. And we're we're on guard. And we hear what God says, no other images, no idols. Third, you will not take the name of the Lord in vain. Don't minimize, blaspheme, disrespect um, the name of God because the name Yahweh, I am that I am, is the name that God has spent most of Exodus describing, this is who I am. Don't make my holy name common. And that could be done by false worship, by false oaths, by um, perverse language, any way that you would take the name of God and defame it and bring it low. Our name is Yahweh, God, Jesus Christ, our Savior, and we don't do anything that would undermine His name. That's why when we pray in His name, we're calling on Him to, to answer. Our Father who out in heaven, yeah, hallowed be your name. Your name is holy. Don't do anything that would diminish the name and reputation of Christ. And lastly, keep the Sabbath. Keep the Sabbath and and remember it to keep it holy. This was to parallel the pattern of God in the creation that after six days He took the seventh day and He rested. And if God did that, then He instituted for His people that they would rest on the seventh day. And it would be a day in which They gave that day to the Lord. The Sabbath was for the Lord. So when people said, well, uh, it meant to cease from work. So they stopped working and they gave that day to the Lord and they remembered him. And it was a recalibration. Now You need to know that all the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament except this one is not legislated in the same way in the New Testament of keeping the Sabbath. And the reason is is because Christ is our Sabbath, and we're in Him. He is our Sabbath rest, which doesn't mean that we might not be benefited from taking a day of rest, from resting. Everybody said? Yeah, yeah. You could do that, and and it actually might do the same thing. It's like I'm giving this time to the Lord that I would recalibrate my life. All four of these commands have the mission of helping the people of God Worship the God that we talked about, almighty, gracious, sovereign, and keeping him first. Which is no surprise then when you come to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 22, that Jesus actually takes these first four and says, well, how, what's a good way to summarize all the commandments of God? And somebody, smart Alec, came to him trying to trick him and said, what's the greatest command? And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. With all your soul, with all your mind. Wait, what about commandment 1, 2, 3, 4? This is the summary. The way you love God is you keep Him in His right place. And you don't let anything threaten allegiance to Him. And His name is over all that you do. In word or deed, do it all to the name and to the glory of Jesus Christ. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And you keep him as your rest. You rest in him. That's the summary of it right there. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Now, I'll be honest with you, how did Israel do in keeping this law? They they failed a lot. And they never really made it um, because I think in part they probably had some of the same misunderstandings that we have today. The Ten Commandments were not given to save Israel. They were given because Israel was saved by God's grace out of Egypt. So the way that Kevin DeYoung put it in in a writing that I read this week is that the Ten Commandments aren't instructions on how to get out of Egypt. They are instructions of how to keep a free people free. In other words, what God was giving when he started to give the Ten Commandments And all the laws that followed was to give a kind of life for his people that would be in a a certain way that would be the really good life. Like the guardrail. You know, back to that. This is is the good life for you. And that's what God wanted to do. uh, To give them that kind of life. Not to constrain them in any way. But to really remind them of his moral law and moral character. So when they entered the promised land on the verge, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 20, here's the way Moses encouraged the people. He said, The Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God. What's the next phrase? For our good always. It's like the reason God gave these was for our good always that he might preserve us here alive God's perfect character gave a perfect law that flowed from his grace to give a good life for his people and that's been the theme of the Bible in fact David wrote a psalm in Psalm 19 and Psalm 19 talks about the law of the Lord and I want you to see what he says I'm going to stop and you fill in the, the word when I stop, right? The law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. If you need revival today, you need to turn to the Word of God. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. You don't have a college education, you feel embarrassed about that? So what? You study the Word of God, you'll be wise in your life, wiser than all your teachers. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. You depressed? You in a foul place in your soul? Study the precepts of God and let them enlighten and rejoice your heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is. Yeah, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are, yeah, and righteous altogether. See, when God gave his law, it wasn't like, all right, stay in line. It was like, have a good life. Have a good life. The next part of Psalm 19 goes this way. There are more to be desired than gold and much fine gold. Oh, if we could only capture that in America. That the words of God are better than riches and sweeter than honey and the drippings of honeycomb. Moreover, by them as your servant warned and keeping them there's great. If we only believe that and God's giving his law to say, I want you to have a good life. He said, I just can't keep it. And I watch Israel and they tried and failed, tried and failed, tried and failed, tried and failed. And we just feel like we're walking in the same steps. And you know what good thing that we have that Israel didn't have? We had the witness of the life of Jesus who fulfilled the law and kept it in every way and then he went to the cross for lawbreakers like me. And I trust him. And we find in the New Testament that actually the New Testament says that the law is the tutor that leads us to Jesus. And You'll never be saved by keeping the law. But keeping the law is a good life. But you will be saved by trusting the one who always kept the law, and that's Jesus. Are there any questions? I pray today that as you listen to this, you will be drawn to the one who lived according to the fullness of the law, kept it in every way, and then just say, Jesus, uh, forgive me for the ways I have failed to keep your law and not love God with all my heart. Today, I want to be refreshed. I want to be rebooted. I want to start again and say, I want to love God with all my heart and have no other gods before him to honor his name and to rest in him. You with me? Let's pray together. God, we just want to ask that you will take this Old Testament narrative of your incredible work in Israel and bring it to life in our souls. Awaken us on the inside to love your law. Because the law is you. It's your character. And I pray that you'll help us to identify and then dispatch any lesser loves that compete with your place in our soul. Lord, we just listen to you now. What loves of our life are really, in fact, idols? we hear you help us to keep those in check in place and help us to see you as the perfect lawgiver and the redeemer of your people whom you treasure whom you carry the sovereign one we rest in you And I just pray that you'll give us a heart and our soul to love your word, to follow it, and to be replenished at the deepest parts of the corners of our heart that have been in secret to you. I pray they would just come forward today and say, no, there is but one God, and I worship you. This is what we pray for. The Holy Spirit's work in our life to this end, until all the world knows that there is no God like our God. In the name of Jesus, we all pray, amen.